We're going to have a scripture reading this morning, so I invite you to open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 23. We will begin in verse 44 and read all the way to chapter 24, verse 12. Luke 24, starting in verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And after, and having said this, he breathed his last Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly, this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph, from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in a linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb cut in stone, where no one had ever been yet laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested, according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not see the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living amongst the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he had told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven And to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen clothes by themselves. And he went home marveling at what had happened. That is the word of the Lord. This morning, we will begin to embark upon a a line-by-line journey or study, if you will, through the book of Acts. Um, I had every intention of teaching through chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. Uh, but I just couldn't get past verse 1, man. It's just too loaded. It's too amazing. It's too awesome. So we will be focusing on Acts chapter 1, verse 1 this morning. I do believe that God has um, set before us like five primary goals uh, for the series. And those are the first, we want to witness how Christ began 
to build his church. That's essentially what the book of Acts represents. It represents the works of Christ in his church, in this new church, the construction and building of this church in the first century, the beginning of it. So we want to witness how Christ did that. Second thing, we want to gain wisdom and knowledge for how to be a gospel-centered church um, that glorifies God. Um, You've heard me talk, if you've been here for the last three weeks, about gospel centrality and how important it is to keep that at the forefront of who we are. And uh, I do believe that uh, the book of Acts will help us to know how to be a gospel-centered, gospel-focused church because ultimately it is Christ and His gospel that... (laughs) that changed the world that began in the first century. And so we want to know as a new church what that means and what that looks like and how to apply those things. And then uh, the third thing, we want to have our minds renewed. I talked about that a couple of weeks ago. So that we will be able to test and apply what is true in all areas of life and to dispose that which is false. That is one of the primary goals of, of gospel preaching of working through the Scriptures, of working through books of the Scriptures, is that our minds would be renewed by the Holy Spirit through that time, that we would know what is right and that we would know what is wrong, that we would know what pleases the Lord and we would know that uh, those things that He uh, disapproves of. And so we want our minds renewed through the study. And we want to be, fourthly, we want to be brought to a deeper level of maturation or maturity Uh, by studying and by growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's another one of the key reasons why we study the Word of God, that we would be brought to a deeper level of maturity um, that will come out in our daily living and interaction with others. Very, very important. Then fifthly, last, we want to become empowered through the, the Holy Spirit to be bold in our community for the Lord and for His gospel. Um, I can think of no other book uh, outside of Acts that really does that. When you look at how these apostles were transformed and empowered by the gospel, by the Holy Spirit, how they were bold. And we'll read as we get into the book and we'll study areas where someone like Paul would come into Ephesus and it turns the whole city on its head. One of the great questions I have is, why isn't that happening here? It's not. We don't have uproars here over the gospel. And to some degree, something should be happening here. And so I sincerely hope and pray that we would be empowered through the Holy Spirit to be bold in our community for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the Lord. Now, since we're beginning a new series, um, I've just listed uh, some facts about Acts and its author. Uh, this would be my version or rendition of an introduction into the book. It's not going to be really deep and rich and all that. It's just, here's some facts about the book, things that I think that will benefit us as we begin to study it, things that we need to know. Um, obviously, scholars and church historians believe that a man named Luke wrote Acts as well as the Gospel of Luke. Luke doesn't identify himself in either of his long letters, but The consensus is, through lots of study and the leading of the Holy Spirit, that it's a guy named Luke. Luke was a Greek man. He was a a physician. Uh, Luke himself sort of appears for the first time in Acts 16.10, where he joins Paul, Silas, and Timothy on the second missionary journey in the region of a a place called Trous. That's where we first see him mentioned in Acts. Uh, It looks like Luke wrote the book of Acts uh, between 62 and 64 A.D. Um, This is an interesting one that I I was like, what, really? Uh Uh-uh, seriously? But Luke actually wrote more uh, in the New Testament than any other author. So often we sort of shift that credit over to Paul in his 13 letters. Uh, But by the time you compile the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts together, you have more pages of Scripture written. And so Luke wrote more New Testament Scripture than anyone else. And that's just really interesting. I'd never known that until I stumbled across that cool little fact. Um, Acts, the book of Acts actually picks up where Luke's Gospel leaves off, uh, recording the early progress of the Gospel as Jesus' disciples took it from Jerusalem throughout Judea and 
Samaria and the rest of the Mediter uh, Mediterranean world. It's probably where that clock came from, since I can't get that right. Um, <laughs> at, yeah, Spain. Acts forms basically a bridge between the four Gospels and the rest of the New Testament, showing how the apostles carried on Christ's work and providing a historical background for Romans through Revelation. So with that being said, it's a very, very, very important book. And in all honesty, out of my 10 years of being a Christian and five years of working in ministry and maybe 10 years of listening to sermons and all that, I've, I don't know if I've ever even heard the book taught on. Uh, I've heard the Gospels taught over and over, and I've heard epistles taught over and over. I've heard lots of Old Testament books. And uh, it's kind of rare that anyone engages in the book of Acts, which is so clearly the best guideline that we have for how to, how to be a church. And so, and that's not to say that men aren't out there expounding on it. It's happening, but is it, does that sound like a book that you've, I mean, have you sat through that? You know, it's not, it just doesn't really happen, and I don't know why that is. I've always wanted, uh, since reading it for the first time so many years ago, I've always wanted to teach through it. Because it's so fascinating when you read it, just the, the storyline and the narrative and how the Holy Spirit was working and how Jesus was saving people. It's just, it's amazing. And so I'm so excited uh, to begin this great journey through it. Now, like I said, this morning we're going to launch our series by focusing on verse 1, which is probably going to be an a indicator that uh, it's probably going to take a while to get through it. That doesn't mean that we won't stop periodically and focus on other things and maybe teach through an epistle or something in the Old Testament, but for the most part, this is going to be our default sermon series for 10 years. Um, <laughs> Jesus is going to be like, Phil, I'm 500 years into my millennial kingdom. Could you bring that thing to an end? Uh, so we'll be, in it for, we'll be in it for a little while, but again... I, for those of you that know me uh, well, you know that my philosophy is, why do we have to get through the Word of God so quickly? I mean, what, what are we doing in the church today? We've got to fly through all these topics and hit on these things during these seasons, and it's just unbelievable. The greatest thing that we could do is slowly creep through the Scriptures. And so that's my philosophy. So if you, if you like that, great. If you don't, I love you. <laughs> so... Uh, we're going to begin with Acts 1.1, and what I'll do is I'll read our verse. I would like to call it text, but it's really a verse, and, uh, and then I'll pray, and then we'll examine it together. Amen? Sound good? You guys ready? I want to encourage you to take notes, to get your uh, pens ready, maybe warm up by doing this, you know, and get these things. If you have carpal tunnel, that's going to be hard, but uh, just get this ready to take some notes because we're going to cover a lot of ground today. It's, it's so amazing how much God packs into words and verses and passages. So, Acts 1.1, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Father, as we sit here now, God, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds uh, to your word. God, humble us now. May we not be distracted in any way. May we put away with the cares of this world and the different things that tend to interrupt these times. May we be solely focused on you as the great teacher here. Uh, transform our minds and our hearts through the power of your Holy Spirit and through the power of your living word. Jesus, come and fill this place. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Verse 1, in the first book, O Theophilus, stop. We've got to stop there. Luke begins with two things here in what I would call verse 1a. First, he references his first piece of work, his gospel. That's the first book that he mentions, the gospel of Luke. Secondly, he identifies his audience, his reader, and the guy's name was Theophilus. Luke had written both of his books, his gospel and the book of Acts, to this man. 
The scriptures do not reveal much about Theophilus, uh, but Luke may have provided a bit of insight about him and about who he was in the first chapter of his gospel. Take a listen to Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. And I'll read it, and we can get a sense of who this guy may have been. And I think it's important because uh, his name is there, and his name represents who he is and some context. And so Luke 1, 1 to 4, you can turn there if you want to or just listen. Luke says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word have delivered them to us. He's talking about the other gospel writers, those who witnessed what was happening with Jesus, who recorded things and who have provided proofs of that. He says, just as they have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also... um, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you. And then he says, Most excellent, Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. In verse 3, Luke called Theophilus most excellent. This may indicate that Theophilus was some sort of a Roman official, because Luke applied it uh, to other Roman officials like Felix, which is in Acts 23, 26, and Festus, which is in Acts 26, 25. These two guys were the governors of Judea. Theophilus may have been some sort of a Roman dignitary or political official or, or someone of that nature. If this is true, Luke may have had a bit of strategy for writing to this man He may have believed that Theophilus could use his power and influence to affect others or other officials with the gospel. We must remember that Luke was trained how to do ministry by Paul. The Apostle Paul had a strategy for how to spread the gospel. We have so often thought of him as being some traveling evangelist uh, or something of that nature, and that is really not what he was. Yes, he was an evangelist. Yes, he traveled, but Paul was a church planter. Whenever Paul went into a region, he planted a church. And his strategy was to go into the key cities of countries and to plant churches in the key cities because he believed the key cities could influence everything below them. And so being trained by Paul, it might very well be that Luke decides to write to a Roman official thinking with some sense of strategy that this guy could influence, much like Paul planted churches in larger cities that could influence. I tend to believe that that's who Theophilus was because of the most excellent uh, title that he has given. I think he was some sort of Roman official or he could have been a governor of another, another province or, or, or maybe a senator. Who knows? He is Greek, and he could have been something of that nature, and there may have been some strategy behind writing to this gentleman. Now, and then there's another take on it. The name Theophilus is masculine, so we know that in the Greek it's masculine, so we know that it is a man, it's not a gal. And the name means in the Greek, lover of God or loved of God, which may suggest that uh, the name Theophilus is more of a title rather than a person's actual name. Luke may have called this person Theophilus because they loved Jesus, not because their name was Theophilus, which is pretty interesting. I think it is the first explanation that this guy was a Roman dignitary, but it could be that, you know, it may have been that that Greeks referred to other believers as Theophilus because of their love for God or something like that. So an interesting bit of uh, potential facts there. Um, One thing is certain, though, and this is what I love. This is certain. Luke's target audience for both of his books was an individual that he obviously loved and cared about deeply. This appears to be true because he wrote 52 chapters of Scripture to this man with the express purpose of teaching him all about Jesus, who Jesus is, what Jesus did, and what Jesus is doing. I sincerely pray that we as a church would be as resolved and as diligent as Luke was in making Jesus known. 
we will never write Scripture. We will never be like Luke in the sense that we will write Scripture. Scripture is a completed work, but we certainly can share the gospel. We certainly can share Scripture with others. And I pray that we would be as fervent and as passionate about sharing Jesus Christ with others as Luke was. 52 chapters of Scripture to a man so that he would know Jesus. Absolutely amazing. Look at Luke, or not Luke, look at chapter 1, verse 1a and b combined. That's our entire text. We'll go through it again and we'll get on the back end of it. It says, in the first book, O Theophilus, we've covered that. I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Luke has made a spectacular statement here in this text. He referred to his first letter, his gospel account, as the beginning of Jesus' work and teaching. What does he mean by this? Is he referring to the atonement? Is he referring to the work that Jesus did on Calvary? No. The atonement is a completed work. It is a finished work. It is not an ongoing work. Some in the church believe that it is an ongoing work. Many, many Catholics do. And this is why they envision Jesus on the cross still atoning for sin and with His blood still pouring forth. And that is a misunderstanding of Scripture. It's misleading. It's a false teaching. And so the atonement, the work that Jesus did, and what is the atonement? It's the work that Jesus did on the cross for the sins of His people. He lived a perfect life. He died on a cross for their sins. He was buried for three days, and He rose conquering death and sin. That is the atonement. That work is done. It is so important that we as a church remember this and are reminded of that gospel foundational thing, reminded weekly. And as I've said before, the reason why is because our default mode is that of works righteousness. Sin has caused, and our fallen nature has caused within us a passion and desire to earn our way with God or with false gods and with people and to win their approval by our dynamic, wonderful things that we do. That is our absolute default is works righteousness. We must be reminded even daily, moment by moment, that the atoning work is done. And if we are in Christ, all works righteousness must cease. We must, it must cease. It must end. The atonement, our sins have been permanently removed by the blood of the Lamb of God. The justice and wrath of God have been forever satisfied and quenched. The righteousness of the perfect Son has been imputed to the imperfect sons and daughters of God. These are biblical truths that need to be understood and remembered, and tragically, they're not talked about in churches often enough. They are not. We must always remember that the atonement is the completed work of Jesus Christ, and it is what we rest in. Now, Luke understood these things. He understood these truths, so that's not what he's referring to. What then is he referring to? If this was the beginning of his works, then what does that mean? Where do we go from there? I believe what he's referring to are the things that Jesus did in the early church. These would be the things that Theophilus was about to read about in the book of Acts, these continuing works of Jesus, so to speak. Now, the scope of Jesus' work and teaching goes far beyond the first century and what happened in the early church, the book of Acts. Jesus has been working and teaching in every century, and He continues to do so. The main thing that Luke is trying to convey to Theophilus is this. Jesus is alive and still at work and still teaching. With that being said, I'd like to spend some time talking about 
the ongoing work and teaching of Jesus. Some of these things we'll extract from the book of Acts, and some of them are outside of that. But I think it's okay to take a broader look at it because I think Luke's inference here is, Theophilus, you're going to read about how Jesus is alive and about what He's doing, but the scope is much larger. It's beyond that. Jesus is working and working and working. And so I want to examine really four sort of key things. Uh, These are the ongoing things of Jesus. Uh, One would be the ongoing saving work of Jesus. Two would be the ongoing intercessional work of Jesus. Three would be the ongoing outpouring of divine power by Jesus. Four would be the ongoing rule and reign of Jesus. Let's examine each of these. This is going to be where the meat of the sermon is. First thing, the ongoing saving work of Jesus. Jesus was and always has been the only, one and only Savior to this world. He has always been the Savior of the world. That's not to say that He saves all people in the world. We know that to be true. But when it comes to who can save in this world, it's Jesus and Jesus alone. It's not Buddha. It's not Muhammad. It's not Allah. And not in the Arabic sense of the God Father, but in the Arabic sense of, or in the Muslim sense of who God is. All of these things are the imaginations of, of men. These are the creative, imaginatory, is that a word? Yeah. Well, the English teacher back there is going, now, but go with it. These are the, the products of men's imagination. They're idols. And so the bottom line is you must know this, that Jesus is and always has been the Savior of the world. Jesus was the Savior in the Old Testament. Adam and Eve were saved by Jesus. Elijah was saved by Jesus. King David was saved by Jesus. Habakkuk was saved by Jesus. Hannah was saved by... On and on and on and on and on. Now, it is true that that many uh, prior to Isaiah's time did not know the name of Jesus. Isaiah named him as Emmanuel. You shall call him Emmanuel, God with us. But there is no doubt that all of the saints of old prior to the New Testament, their hope was in the coming Messiah, and His name just happens to be Jesus. They were hoping in the coming Messiah, the promised Lamb of God, who would be sent by God in the future. And this goes all the way back to Genesis 3 and God's promise that one will come from you, Eve, that will crush Satan. And so Jesus has always been the Savior. And I've heard so many people ask the question, well, how did people get saved in the Old Testament? By Jesus. And then he was thought of as the coming Messiah, God sent Messiah, our Redeemer, our Deliverer. Jesus was the Savior during his incarnation. Jesus saved the apostles minus Judas. He saved Lazarus, Zacchaeus, a.k.a. Danny DeVito. Uh, He saved Nicodemus. He saved Joseph of Arimathea. He saved Mary Magdalene. He saved lepers, blind men, and a bunch of other people. When he came as a baby and grew up into a man and began his ministry, he saved people. He saved people during his incarnation. Jesus was and still is the Savior after his ascension. Jesus saved a lame beggar in Acts 3. Jesus saved Simon the Magician in Acts 8. Jesus saved Saul of Tarsus, a.k.a. the Apostle Paul, in Acts 9. Jesus saved Tabitha in Acts 9. Jesus saved Cornelius in Acts 10, and so on, and so on, and so on. And every person that sits in this room that has been saved by that glorious Savior has been saved by that glorious Savior. Jesus, He is the Savior His work of applying, regenerating, and applying His salvation continued from the first century to the second century and beyond, and it continues to today. And guess what? If He doesn't return anytime soon, it'll continue to continue. He is the Savior, and His work of salvation is still going, and glory be to Him for that. 
The second thing is the ongoing intercessional work of Jesus. The Bible teaches that Jesus is our everlasting priest who intercedes for us. Hebrews 7, 24 to 25 mentions this beautiful passage. It says, Jesus holds His priesthood permanently because He continues forever. Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. The passage says that Jesus permanently holds the position of priest because He is everlasting, because He is eternal, because He has no end. It says that He is able to save to the highest level those who draw near to Him, draw near to God through Him. And then at the end of 25, it says that He lives, He always lives. I love that, that, that always, that verb of continuing. He always continues to live to make intercession for the saints. One of the primary duties of the Levitical priest was to offer sacrifices to God for the sins of the people. This was known as intercession. When Jesus offered Himself at Calvary, He did what no earthly priest could ever do. He made a once and for all intercession to God for all who believe. Jesus' death on the cross was a divine act of intercession. God came down and did what no earthly priest could ever do, and He did it once and for all through His everlasting, eternal, holy, righteous, perfect Son. Now, if Jesus made a one-time everlasting intercession for the saints at Calvary, why does the author say that He always lives to continue on in interceding for them at the end of verse 25. It's an interesting potential dilemma that we have. I think the primary way, and I think what the author of Hebrews is inferring or referencing to, is I think that he's referring to the fact that Jesus continues to intercede for us today. He does it by defending us against the accusations and, uh, of our adversary and accuser, Satan. Revelation 12.10 says that Satan comes to the throne of God day and night to make accusations against the saints. Now, since Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, Ephesians 1.20, and has given all, He has been given all authority in heaven and on earth, Matthew 28.18, and is our intercessor, Hebrews 7.25, it makes sense that He would intercept and dispel Satan when He approaches the throne, just as a good defense attorney would a felonious witness in a court of law. This is pretty much how Jesus intercedes for us. Satan comes and pleads his case against us, and then our earthly, or our <laughs> earthly, our heavenly, kingly attorney defends us and dispels, dismisses him. Now, you must never forget this. This is so important. Ongoing intercession, biblically speaking, does not mean that Jesus is in a perpetual state of trying to convince the Father that we are really saved, especially during moments of disobedience. I've heard this passage taught on, and, and men have made it sound like that Jesus is up there, and as soon as Satan brings an accusation or when God looks down and He sees us and we're in sin, they've made it sound like Jesus has to interrupt God because now God is confused. And He's sitting up there going, Oh, look at what Phil's doing. I'm going to have no choice but to cast him in hell, into hell. I've, I've heard men teach it in such a way that it, it's, like, it's like the father is, is aloof and uninformed and, and, and doesn't, it, he isn't omniscient in that he knows all things and that Jesus, you know, Jesus has to come in and be a mediator on our behalf to God when God gets a little confused about our position. Have you ever heard that or it felt like, okay, Jesus is there to, to defend you against the father, to the father that way. Really? And the inference is, is that the Son knows something that the Father doesn't know and that the Father doesn't know the same things that the Son knows. And, 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 and you must understand the Godhead. 
They all know the same things. They all know exactly the same things. God is one, manifest in three. Jesus never has to defend our position to the Father. The Father is the divine architect of our salvation. The scriptures say that he predestined us unto salvation in Ephesians 1.11. He is the constructor of the atonement. He is the constructor of our salvation. He put the whole plan together. God wrought it, Jesus bought it, and the Holy Spirit brings it. So Jesus never has to defend us to God. The Father doesn't go, oh, Father, let me tell you, I know Phil, he's in me. And so don't fret. Okay, I was about to destroy him for the two, the two millionth time. Now, the Father knows what the Son knows. The Son knows what the Father knows. And it is the same with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, it is not the Father that needs to be convinced by the intercessing Son. It is the enemy, the devil. The devil brings his slanderous allegations before the throne of God. He pleads against us. In fact, he makes things up against us, just as he did Job. Oh, the only reason why your servant loves you and obeys you is because you've given him so much junk. Was that the true heart of Job? No. He brings allegations. He makes things up, just as he did with Job. He is the father of lies, and yet our great intercessor and priest, Jesus, is there to intercept defeat and to dispel him. Aren't you glad? You know, Satan doesn't know all the things that God knows. Satan is not omniscient. He does not have the same level of knowledge And so I think quite often he looks at us and he tempts us and he lures us into crap. And we fall and we fail and we make mistakes. And I think sometimes that in his mind, I knew they weren't really in Christ. Look at what they're doing. Look at what they've done. And so what does he do with his feeble little understanding? He goes before the Father and says, no rightful heir, no rightful son would do such a thing. And Jesus says, eh. You think you know everything. In fact, that thinking got your butt kicked out of here a while ago. You don't know my son. You don't know my daughter. Take a hike. Glory to God for that. We have a great intercessor. And, and, you know, and he continues and continues. He continues to intercede on behalf of the saints. He He is always there at the right hand of the majesty, defending defending against our accuser. And at some point in the future, he will be, Satan will be booted out of heaven. He won't be able to bring any accusations whatsoever. Glory to God. Good stuff. The third thing is the ongoing outpouring of divine power by Jesus. Throughout Jesus' ministry, we see him pour out divine power. He healed people and cast out demons. He turned water into wine. And fed, I wish he could turn water into soda at my house. I just had to throw that. I hate it when we run out of soda. And with kids, it just, right? Just anoint that with a little bit of that sweet Pepsi goodness, Lord. The lemon water is killing my teeth. He healed people and he cast out demons. He turned water into wine and he fed thousands from almost nothing, right? A couple loaves and a few trout or whatever the heck they were. Sardines. He walked on water and stopped a storm. He raised the dead. The last line in the Gospel of John says that he did so many things that there aren't enough books in the world to contain them. Did this outpouring of divine power come to an end after his ascension? No, it increased. One of the greatest outpourings of Jesus' power happened after his ascension in the year 30 A.D., Both John the Baptist and Jesus himself prophesied about that special event, John 1.33 and John 16.13, and that event is known as the day of Pentecost. Acts 2.1-4, when the day of Pentecost arrived, 
They were all gathered together in one place. That's the church, about 120 people. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, before this tremendous, explosive, amazing outpouring of divine power, the church was ill-equipped to bring the gospel to the world. Men lacked courage. Men lacked revelation. Men lacked the gumption that it would take. This is why Jesus commanded them that they wait in Jerusalem for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Immediately following this incredible outpouring of divine power at Pentecost, Peter, filled with this divine power, preached the gospel, and 3,000 people were saved and baptized. Peter's sermon is really the first event that took place right after Pentecost where we see this new divine power at work in the world in the early church. Now, if you peruse or cruise through the rest of the book of Acts, you will see Jesus pour out His divine power in healings and exorcisms and jailbreaks and in moments of protection. What about later on? What about after the first century? What about in the the following centuries? Well, let's skip up to 1541. In 1541, Jesus began to pour out His divine power in Geneva. And a revival broke out there that rivaled the that literally rivaled the revival that broke out during the time of Josiah in Israel thousands of years prior, or hundreds of years, yeah, thousands of years prior. In the mid-1970s, which is a little closer to our date, Jesus began to pour out His divine power in parts of Guatemala. In 19, and this is amazing, in 1962, there were 60,000 Protestants in the entire country. 60,000 in an entire country of millions upon millions of people. 36 years later, there's 3,300,000 Protestants. That's an explosive church. I hope they're not gathering at one place. Can you imagine? (laughs) The name tag guy just would jump off Ralston Tower. Oh, my God. 3,300,000 in... In 36 years, we're talking Protestants here, in 36 years, Jesus is pouring out His power on Guatemala. Men men are getting saved. Bars are closing, those drinking establishments. Jails were closing. The police don't carry Uzis anymore there. They don't even carry billy clubs. 96% of Almalanga is Christian. There's 25,000, 30,000 people that live there. The ongoing outpouring of divine power by Jesus. We saw it, we see it even in the Old Testament where the Holy Spirit is sent forth. We see it in the New Testament. We see it in, 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 in the ministry, gospel ministry of Jesus, where He's healing and doing these things and pouring out power, equipping people to go out and do ministry and things. We see it throughout history, throughout every century. There's been incredible displays and outpourings of, of the divine power of Jesus. It's awesome, man. In our world today, Jesus continues to pour out His divine power through physicians evangelists, and regular folks like us. Let's make it a little personal. Think back 10 years ago. Where were you at in life? What did your faith look like? Did you have faith? I didn't. I can can look back over the last 10 years and see Christ's power in my life. Regeneration when He saved me and how He's been transforming the way I think and live, calling me to ministry, rescuing me from the porn and all the stuff that I was hung up on. I can look at my own life and I can say to you, 
with every fiber of my being and with 100% accuracy that 10 years ago I was headed to destroying my marriage, destroying my family, and destroying my life. My wife will nod her head. Yes, he was. And because of the outpouring of power into my life, saving power, sanctifying power, transformational power, power to do ministry, power to preach. I can look back 10 years and I don't, I don't need, I don't have to, I love them, but I don't have to have the witnesses of others. I know it in my own life. And the question to you is, look back 10 years. Can't you see the power of Christ alive and at work in your own life? Wow. You're not who you were 10 years ago. And for some of you, 20 years ago. For some of you, five years ago. How has he poured power into your life and faith? And guess what? He's still doing it today, even in our own lives. The fourth thing is the ongoing rule and reign of Jesus. Listen to what took place after the ascension of Jesus. Hebrews 1.3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After, that's amazing, after making purification for sins, after the atonement, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The text says that He is the radiance of the glory of God and that He upholds the universe by the word of His power and that after the atonement, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty. Friends, we have an enthroned king and His name is King Jesus. But He is more than our enthroned king. He is also our enthroned high priest. Listen to Hebrews 8, 1 to 2. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. I love that. Another one of the chief duties of the Levitical priest was to minister to the people by dispensing the mercy and grace of God to all who sought it, to all who desired it. They were there to dispense and to proclaim the mercy and grace of God over people, to teach it to them, to impart it to those who came crying out for it. And this is what Jesus does now as our enthroned king and high priest. He ministers not from a cloth tent or stone temple, but from his throne in heaven. It is there that he divvies out the mercy and grace of God to those who seek it. J.C. Ryle wrote, and it's in your quote of the week, the ear of the Lord Jesus is ever open to the cry of all who want Mercy and grace. Love that. The Bible takes this further though, friends. It says in Hebrews 4.16 that the throne that Jesus sits on is called the throne of grace. And then it says that we may confidently draw near to it in our times of need. Jesus is enthroned and He rules and reigns as King and as High Priest over His kingdom of grace. I love it. We've got a high priest who who sits at the highest level at the right hand of God on his throne of grace there to dispense mercy and grace to those who seek it. And and I and I think that if if a if a sinner who's outside of Christ comes and cries out to the messianic son to Jesus for mercy, guess what? His ear is open to them. For crying out loud, his work is already at work. He's already working in their life if they know who he is and who to cry out for. It's obvious. So his ear would be open to them 
But how much more is his ear open to those of his, those who belong to him, his children, who, who, who mess things up at times and who struggle and who, who have trouble and issues and, and we sin you know, just perpetually. And, and, and guess what? It says that we can come to the throne of grace and stand before our king and high priest and cry out for mercy and grace to him. How often we just forget that he is a king and that he's sovereign and that he's ruling and reigning and he is there to dispense the mercy and grace of the Father through his atoning work. How often we forget and we keep those struggles and things to ourselves and it kills us. We don't have to go to a guy with a collar and go to a confessional. His confessional is not made by men's hands. It is perfect, without sin. It is is exactly what we need in our lives. We need to go to Him daily and moment by moment. And it says that we can come to Him boldly. He is our King. He is sovereign. He's in control. He's, He's ruling. We don't have to let our lives just get out of hand and filled with anxiety and what will happen next and all these things. We act like we don't have a King. And part of that comes from being raised up in a country, a, a democracy, where we elect people to serve our interests. What we need is one who knows us best and who rules over us and that we can submit to him. This is why the church does so much better in parts of Europe. Yes, it's dying in most of Europe, but there are areas where, where people still get it and they know what it means to be ruled by a king and they, 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 they know what it means to submit to a king. And so their perspective of Christ as king is different than ours because we've got presidents and guess what? We can do what we want. We elect our official to minister to us. Ah, he, we didn't elect him. He elected us. And we, we need to get this into our minds. We have a king, and he's in control, and he's sovereign, and our lives need not to be out of control, in disarray, filled with anxiety. I get it. We have those moments and those things that happen, the despair and those things. But may we never forget that we've got a king who continues to rule and reign. And 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 and. and, and an added bonus. He's a priestly king. One who says, one who says not, come to my throne and be perfect. Or don't say those things before me or cry out for those things. One who says, I am your king and I am your high priest. Come. I will listen. Did Jesus not experience what we experience in, in life? Did he not live as a man? The scriptures say he was tempted in every conceivable way, which makes him the perfect priest. And which makes him more the perfect priest is that he didn't give in to the junk like we do. Wow. I love how it says the throne of grace. But we must not be mistaken because the throne of grace will change to the throne of glory. Grace will cease. We are in a kingdom of grace now where the gospel is proclaimed. The Lord Jesus has not come back. So we are in a time and era and period of grace. But when he returns, grace is over. It is glory. And he will make war with his enemies and defeat them and establish his millennial reign and kingdom where his throne will be not the throne of grace, but the throne of glory, which is rightfully His. All His enemies will be made His footstool. We must keep that in mind. This is the era of grace, and His throne is the throne of grace. May we lead people to His throne through the gospel while we still have time. Because someday it'll be too late. The last thing that Luke mentioned at the end of verse 1, he said Jesus had only begun to teach, which leads us to our fifth point, the ongoing teaching of Jesus. Jesus was and still is an extraordinary teacher, the most extraordinary teacher ever His Sermon on the Mount is the greatest bit of preaching to ever grace this earth. 
If you've ever read it, I want, if you haven't read it, I want to encourage you to read it. It is not of this world. Men have written countless books on it. I've got one at home that's over 400 pages written on just the Sermon on the Mount, which is about three chapters of Scripture. 400 pages just written on that one author. The Sermon on the Mount has been the, the area of, it has been an area of study for centuries and centuries. It is, it, is, it is incredible. It is the greatest bit of preaching we will ever see. Why we're not in it all the time, I don't know. We've got the Beatitudes there and all these things. The salt and light and those things. Amazing. Jesus' teaching was extraordinary during his incarnation when he was teaching and proclaiming the coming kingdom, that kingdom of grace that would come. The gospel would be proclaimed and men and women and children would be saved. His preaching was so extraordinary, his teaching was so extraordinary that even Pharisees marvel at, at his teaching. Boy, they sure thought they were the orators of their day. One named Nicodemus came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God. Wow. Pharisees? Really? Jesus' enemy? Yeah. Blown away. Some would say that Jesus' teaching ended when he ascended. This opinion is fashioned from sheer ignorance. It comes from a wrong understanding about what Christian preachers and teachers are to be and to do. All true and faithful preachers or teachers know that they are messengers of Jesus who have been sent to proclaim His gospel. Preachers and teachers are not called to be cruise ship directors directing all the little functions of a church and all the activities. They're not called to be comedians. <laughs> They're not called to be storytellers. I'm going to open my journal and tell you a story this morning. What have we got, stinking Mr. Rogers on stage? <laughs> They're not called to be divinely appointed therapists. That's what's in pulpits today. Let me give you six ways to change this. Let me give you seven ways to fix this. Let me tell you how to do this, this, and this, and this, and all these solutions and all these things, and A plus B equals Z, and that clock is from France, and just, it's like, we're not divinely appointed therapists. Preachers and teachers are called commanded to be proclaimers of God's Word and the Gospel. When we look at the book of Acts, we see Jesus teaching everywhere. Oh, go look through there and, and see if you can find it says that just Jesus taught this. And yeah, He won't. He taught through His apostles. He taught through lay leaders like Apollos, Aquila. That's how He taught. He taught everywhere. Everywhere in the book of Acts. He taught in different countries and cities, on islands and prisons and courtrooms. When we look at the, the other 26 books of the New Testament, we see Jesus teaching through more apostles and pastors and church planters like Epaphras and, and, and lay leaders like Apollos. All throughout the centuries, we've seen Jesus teach through men like Augustine and Luther and Edwards and Spurgeon and Ryle and Jones and MacArthur and Piper and Keller and Begg and others. Yeah, they're all Reformed. Wherever the gospel is proclaimed accurately and truthfully, Jesus is there preaching. He is the one that is teaching. It is not me. And so often it is, it is the me's that get this and the way to go. He's the teacher. I'm sick and tired of the men preachers getting all the accolades and all the emails and all the comments and things written on this on the oh this is the best guy ever and are you kidding me? It's amazing that I'm this passionate against myself. Because if I ever change, get rid of me. Please. My wife's like, "I will." Two snaps up. I mean, we've got to get this into our head. This is, this is what the text means. This is what Luke is referring to. 
the gospel was the beginning of Jesus' teaching. The book of Acts is another part of it. And then it continues on and on and on. And how does he do it? He does it through apostles and pastors and preachers. And guess what? He does it through you and your workplace when you start sharing the gospel with some soul. That's Jesus that's doing the work, that's doing the teaching. It's always Jesus. It has to always be Jesus. Or we get really goofed up. And one of the things that I've noticed in the church is when, when the preachers focus on divine therapy and keep giving all these little solutions and these little pragmatic steps to getting better, we addict people to ourselves. That's what happens. If I come in here and tell you what to do every week and give you little prescriptions, guess what? You're going to get addicted to Vicodin Phil. And this is why we expound on the Scriptures and work through the Scriptures. So it's the Holy Spirit leading, and so it's Jesus that's teaching and not some Yahoo like me. Pray for me, please, because I'll be brutally honest with you. I struggle with this. I struggle with it at times. And sometimes I feel like, well, I really got it right. Or I'm good at this. And that's just sin. It's Christ and Christ alone. It always will be. His word endures forever. He is the living word, John 1.1. He is the word. And when his word is proclaimed, it is he that is proclaimed. And it is he that is proclaiming it. He is the Word. We've got to remember that, guys. And I give you full permission to to light up the elders when I make mistakes. (laughs) Jack me up. Come to me in love, please, and say, you know, that was really about you. And I'll flog myself for a little while and go to the throne of grace and say, stink. Jesus continues to teach. And Jesus should get the praise and accolades for a good sermon. Not me. No one else but Jesus. May we praise Him for what He's doing. Now, Luke really got this. And it's just, my wife hates this word when I use it. It's just nestled into the text. It's nestled in there like a, a comfy little birdie in his nest. Nest, You know, it's just nestled right in there. Luke got this. I really, really love his statement in verse 1. Before Theophilus begins to read his letter, he wants Theophilus to know that it is Jesus that has done the works in teaching, not the apostles or anyone else. He says, you know what? What I wrote you was the beginning. And now I'm about to write you what he's still doing. What is Luke doing? I certainly don't want Theophilus to think I'm a great writer and historian. He's saying it's Jesus that's done all this stuff. It's What you're about to read, Theophilus, are the acts of Jesus. And some of your Bibles at the top of the header there, it says the acts of the apostles. Who's the Shylock that put that in there? These are not... These are not the acts of the apostles. These are the acts of Jesus, right? Oh, they did some stuff, but it's Jesus. The book of Acts is filled with the acts and works and teachings of Jesus. Luke knew this, and the first thing he says is, Theophilus, I got to remind you, where we've been was all Jesus, where we're going is all Jesus. So don't think Simon Peter's that great, and don't get too crazy about Paul, and I know half the book is written about him, and he's really an awesome dude, but it's Jesus, because it's all about Jesus. That's, that's what he puts right in there. He packs it right into this. It's nestled right into that. It's right there. Before we get going here, you got to know something. It's Jesus. He's the one that does the works and will do the works and is going to do the teaching and all that stuff. Now, I think that if <laughs> Luke were with us today and he opened a Bible that said the Acts of the Apostles right up at the top there, I think he'd just drop dead. He'd just say, you missed my point in verse 1 and you missed my point in the rest of the book. And quite frankly, whoever wrote this, you've missed the whole point of Scripture. And I don't know if some poor soul who wrote that at the top of that was intending anything bad. I doubt it. 
But these are the acts of Jesus. We must always remember that. Jesus is our teacher. And me, we, we, we must absolutely be diligent in giving him all the praise for what he does here in his works and in his teaching at RHC. Now, what have we learned this morning? We've learned that Luke had a spectacular heart for the Lord and others. He wanted Theophilus to know Jesus. And he wrote him 52 chapters of gospel and church history with that purpose in mind. How badly do we desire for others to know Jesus? That's a great question. Luke has set an example for us that's just amazing. I've written some pretty long emails to people explaining Jesus. And I've never done what Luke did. And the point being that do we have that same desire and passion to make Jesus known to people to the point where we would write a 52-page exposition letter to someone or whatever it is, whatever it looks like, that we would just maybe open our lips in our workplaces or at school where we're at or wherever and just share Jesus? Do we have the same kind of heart for the Lord and for people that Luke had? Luke wanted Jesus to get all the praise and glory for what happened in the early church. We see that right in verse 1. That's what he began to do. This is what he's doing. Give him the praise, Theophilus. Do you desire for Jesus to receive all the praise and glory for what he's done for you and for what he continues to do for you and in your life and in the lives of those around you? Do you want him to be glorified? Is that your desire? We've learned that the gospel was only the beginning of Jesus' works and teaching, that He is alive and still saving sinners and interceding for the saints and pouring out His divine power, and that He is ruling and reigning from the throne of grace. What are you burdened with today? Why don't you bring your petition to the throne of grace? Ask Jesus for mercy, for grace or for power, to overcome, to overcome your dilemma, your area of struggle, finances. You have a great high priest who's there ready to receive you. If you fumbled, he's there to receive you with loving arms. If you just need some help in getting through something, he's there to distribute divine power to help you. Ask Jesus for mercy, for grace, and for power to overcome. We've learned that Jesus continues to teach even after being enthroned in glory, that He teaches through those who faithfully preach the gospel. Have you been encouraged today by our great and glorious teacher, Jesus Christ? I hope so. He's the one who's spoken to you. And He desires to help you and desires to transform you and desires to draw you close to Him. I hope you've been encouraged because He's the great encourager. He is the one who sends His Spirit to encourage. 